Some of you may have had a conversation before in which someone asked, if you could have dinner with anyone in the world, who would you have dinner with? And usually the idea is not just, oh, you know, well, my wife or my husband, even though that would be a good answer. The idea is someone that you probably would never get a chance to eat dinner with. Someone famous, someone powerful, someone that if you ever had a chance to eat dinner with them, you'd think this is kind of crazy. I can't believe I'm sitting across from this person. And the chances of you ever getting to do that are practically impossible. In fact, the thought is the only way this would ever happen is if somehow there was a mutual friend, someone that invited me to dinner and invited this person to dinner at the same time. We've gathered this evening and we've gathered to come to the Lord's table. And we sang about that even this evening. We're seated at the table of God, this holy God, this incredible God. How on earth could we get here? How is it possible for us to come to the Lord's table? The book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is writing to believers who understood very clearly, you can't just come to God. You need a mediator. You need someone who can come between you and God so you can come into his presence, that you need a priest in particular, You need a high priest, someone who can come into the very presence of God. If you would, I invite you to take your Bibles this evening and open up to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14, the author of Hebrews begins to remind the Jewish believers, these believers who had come out of Judaism and saying, Yes, you do need a high priest to come to God, and you have a high priest, a better high priest than the Jews ever had in the Old Testament. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14, he talks first of all about how great this high priest is. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, A great high priest, in some ways, is a weird way to phrase it. There's already a word, high priest, which really kind of means the great priest. And so, in a sense, the writer's saying he's the great, great priest. He's the best high priest. There's no high priest any better than this high priest. And that's in part because of where he is. He has passed through the heavens. In the Old Testament, the high priest, one time a year, could pass through the veil into the holy of holies, into the very presence of God. And that was a picture of where God's presence was. And our great high priest, Jesus, didn't just go through the veil into the holy of holies. He's passed into the heavens and he is now with the Father. And so he is in a place better than any high priest could ever get. And he's able to do that in part because of who he is. He is Jesus, the son of God. That he is God himself. That he can stand before the father because he is equal to the father. He is one with the father. He himself is God. 
Unlike any other high priest, this high priest can stand right next to the Father as God. He is a great high priest. And that the author pretty quickly moves from pointing out how great this high priest to also pointing out how he relates to us. Sometimes you might think, well, this person's so great, they have no reason to interact with me. And perhaps as the Jewish believers here, well, you have a great high priest, he's in the heavens and he's God, they'd think, well, how does that help me? How am I supposed to get to the heavens where he is? How am I supposed to be able to interact with him? How is he supposed to know who I am? And the author of Hebrews tells us that our high priest is not only a great high priest, but he is a gracious high priest. He is not only a transcendent high priest, a majestic high priest, but he is a tender high priest. He is not only a high priest who is high and holy, but he is also a high priest who is humble and human. He is not only supreme, he is also sympathetic. And we see this even in the very name he's given, Jesus, the Son of God. Because Jesus points to his humanity. Yes, he is the Son of God. He's the Son of God who became man, who took on flesh, and was one of us. In some ways, when the author of Hebrews was writing this, it may have been harder to think about Jesus as truly God because Jesus had walked on the earth. They'd, he'd been in the synagogues where perhaps some of these Jews had been. Maybe many of them had actually seen him walking around earth. And perhaps there's a struggle for them in some ways to say, wow, this Jesus that was here on earth is now in the heavens. I think for us often the struggle is the opposite. This person who is God actually did walk on this earth did have a body and still has a body. That he is man and he is God. And you cannot get a better mediator between God and man than the God-man. The one who perfectly knows and understands God and the one who perfectly knows and understands us. And that's what the author points to in verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Now, those of you who know grammar realize that's kind of an odd phrasing. It's a double negative, right? We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize. And I don't know exactly why the author phrased it this way. I think it's at least possible he did so because he's kind of answering a subject, uh, an objection some people may have had. The objection being, okay, well, you have a high priest, but your high priest is God and he's in the heavens. And so he can't really sympathize with us. We have a high priest who doesn't understand our weaknesses. Another says, no, no, that's not the kind of high priest we have. We don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize. We have a high priest who can sympathize, who does understand us. I don't think this is just a problem in the author's day. I think even if you look at the history of the church, we see people wrestling with this idea that somehow we could come directly to Jesus. This last Tuesday, October 31st, 
It's Halloween, but it's also, you may be familiar, uh, called Reformation Day. Because that's the day in which Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg. And one of the issues that had developed within the Roman Catholic Church was prayer to saints. And I think that developed in part because people said, well, I mean, I'm not worthy enough to actually come and talk to God. And Jesus is God. And so I can't come to Jesus. I need someone to help me come to Jesus. I need a priest to get me to the high priest. And so these saints maybe can relate to me a little bit better than Jesus can. So I'm going to pray to the saints and then the saints will take my prayers to Jesus. Mary can help me get to Jesus because Jesus isn't going to care about me on his own. And then here the author of Hebrews says, no, 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 no. Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus understands who we are. There are some people who have great power and privilege, and yet they can't really sympathize with you. There are politicians who will say to us, I feel your pain. And you think, you have no idea what I'm going through. When was the last time you bought milk? You have no clue what normal life is. But that's not true of Jesus. He understood all the challenges of walking in this world. And perhaps you've had the experience where someone comes to you and says, I know what you're going through. And you think you really have no idea what I'm going through. And perhaps even as the author of Hebrews is talking to to the believers here and urging them not to fall away from Christ, not to buckle under the pressure and some of the suffering that they're facing, they might be tempted to say, but you don't really understand our situation. They can say, I may not, but Jesus really does. Jesus truly knows all that you are facing. Why? Because he can sympathize with our weaknesses because he was one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Now, what does that phrase at the end mean, without sin? At a minimum, what's very clear in in the book of Hebrews and elsewhere in scripture is that Jesus never sinned. That yes, he was tempted, and yet he never gave in to that temptation. He always perfectly obeyed the Father, always perfectly followed the Father's will. But I think this phrase actually means more than just he never sinned. I think when it's saying yet without sin, it's saying in a sense without a sin nature. That he's distinguishing Jesus' humanity and his experience of humanity from ours in this particular instance. We have a sin nature. And because we have a sin nature, we face some kinds of temptations that Jesus didn't face. We face temptations from our own sinful desires. And we face temptations from our own sinful choices. For example, the the temptation to lie to cover up a bad thing we did. Jesus never faced that temptation because he never had to cover up any bad thing that he did. And so Jesus did not face these kinds of temptations. And yet, he understands 
the weaknesses and frailties of humanity. But no, he did not have a sin nature, but he knew fatigue. He knew hunger and thirst. He certainly understood desires that we have for good things and the temptation sometimes to fulfill those desires for good things in ungodly and sinful ways. He would have understood what the author points out later in the book in Hebrews 11, that there are the temporary pleasures of sin. That he would have seen there would be some type of pleasure for me doing this sinful act. He understood what it meant to be betrayed and beaten. He understood what it was to be deserted and mocked and lied about. He understood what it was like not to even have a place to lay his head. If you think about the temptations he faced with Satan in the wilderness, he experienced the temptation for self-concern above God. Feed yourself, you're hungry. He understood the temptation for popular acclaim to have the crowds honor and worship him by throwing himself off the temple and having himself be saved instead of following the path that God had laid out for him. He understood the ambition for power and for acclaim. And perhaps the author here is thinking especially about the temptation he faced in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because in chapter five, he will point to that example. If you look at chapter five and verse seven, the days of his flesh, he had offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. And in the garden, what did Jesus pray? Lord, if it's possible, take this cup from me. What was the temptation? The temptation was a good desire in his part, a desire not to suffer, a desire not to be made sin, a desire not to face the wrath of God, all good desires. And yet the father had said, this is the path you must go on. You're going to have to face suffering. You're going to have to be made sin. You're going to have to bear my wrath. And so he cries out and says, Lord, if it's possible, take this cup from me. And yet, not my will, but yours be done. And so Jesus understood what it meant to pray for something that is good and to hear God say, no, and yes. No. I will not give you your request here, but yes, I will grant your desire for my will to be done. That when you say, not my will, but yours, I say yes. And again, we maybe have experienced that situation as well. The prayer, Lord, help me not to lose this job. Lord, save my marriage. Keep my marriage from falling apart. 
Lord, would you heal my loved one of cancer? Lord, would you help my child not to walk away from the faith? And Jesus understands God's answer at times of saying, no, but yes. I will not grant that good desire, but I will grant your even better desire for my good and perfect will to be done. And Jesus could face all of these things and be able to say, I understand. I know what you are going through. Yet perhaps we still might begin to question, can Jesus really help us? Because the word sympathize actually does include not just the idea of commiserate in your misery, but actually help you in your suffering. The word is used later on in the book of Hebrews in chapter 10, verses 32 to 34, where he says, remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through insults and distress, and partly by becoming companions with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better and lasting possession. They did not just sympathize by saying, boy, I feel really sorry for you, but by ministering to them and helping them. And Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses, not just by understanding them, but by helping us with them. And because he never sinned, he is better able to help us with these things. I've heard it pictured this way. This may be helpful for you. Let's say I'm trying to become the boxing champion of the world. I know that's shocking. Just try to imagine it. And so I go up against the current champ and I get wiped out. And at that point in time, I might want to say, I would like someone to help me in this situation. So potentially, I might go to Scott Elwert, who recently fought the champ as well and also got wiped out in the first round and say, Scott, you know what I'm going through, right? You say, yeah, that was really rough. Rather embarrassing. Or perhaps I might want to go to, let's say, Derek Doran here, who beat the champ the year before. Now, which person's going to help me more? One person can say, boy, yeah, that's rough. The other person can say, yeah, let me tell you how to do better next time. As we face temptation, As we face the challenge with sin, we can go to Jesus and he can say, I know how to beat that. I know how to overcome that. Because Jesus faced temptation actually in a greater way than any of us can ever face it. Scripture tells us there's always a limit to our ability. We we cannot be tempted above what we are able. Because there's going to come a point in time in which if we were tempted more than we are right now, we would sin. 
And yet there is no limit for Jesus. Jesus could face temptation at its greatest. Jesus could face temptation head on at its height and conquer it. And so because he beat sin, he can sympathize with us. He understands the draw of temptation, but even better, he knows how to overcome it. So the author here tells us, yes, we have a great high priest. Yes, we have a gracious high priest. One who knows us and one who cares for us. You may know of the older song, does Jesus care when my heart is pained too deeply for mirth or song? As the burdens press and the cares distress and the way grows weary and long. Does Jesus care when I've tried and failed to resist some temptation strong? When for my deep grief, I find no relief, though my tears flow all the night long. Does Jesus care when I've said goodbye to the dearest on earth to me? My sad heart aches till it nearly breaks. Is it aught to him? Does he see? What's the answer? Oh, yes. He cares. I know he cares. Because his heart is touched with my grief. The days are weary, the long nights dreary. I know my Savior cares. We have a great high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. And so what should we do? The author here tells us to do two things because we have this great high priest. First, in verse 14, we are told to continue to cling to Christ. The very end of the verse, let us hold fast our confession. What is our confession? Well, our confession is our belief and our statement of belief about who God is and who Jesus is. In a sense, part of our confession is what the author says here. Jesus is the son of God. In one sense, we might say, what's our confession? That Jesus is my only hope in this life and the next. And the author says, hold fast. Put your stakes down. Grab the ropes. Hold on tight. Don't let go. Christ is your only hope. So cling tightly to him. He is the son of God. And so if you go away from Christ, there is no hope. And what these believers were facing was the temptation to fall back into the now obsolete Jewish sacrificial system. It had been done away with. It was no longer the way in which we were to come to honor and serve God. And the author is saying, yes, there's pressure right now. And on this life, it would be easier if you walked away from your confession of faith and you began to to practice something else and believe something else. But that's not where the high priest is. 
That's not where Jesus Christ is. So hold fast to him. And most of us aren't facing the temptation to to move into Judaism. We are facing pressure in our society to embrace pluralism, to, to say, well, there's multiple religions that all really teach truth and there's multiple ways to God. Or perhaps facing pressure in which you're having to choose between your job and your career or faithfully serving Jesus Christ. Or perhaps facing pressure to keep relationships on good terms or to continue holding fast to Jesus Christ. We're here reminded we have a great high priest. So hold fast to him. Cling to him. That you need Jesus in every instance of your life. So do not go away from Christ. Secondly, the command in verse 16, not only to cling to Christ, but to come to Christ's throne of grace. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Throughout the book of Hebrews, the author continually says, don't fall away. And the answer to not falling away is to keep drawing near, to keep coming closer, to not allow yourself to drift, but to continue to come and to draw near to Jesus Christ. In a sense, whenever you're faced with pressures and difficulties, your thought should be, I need to come even closer to Christ. I need to hold even more tightly to him. What does it look like? It says to draw near with confidence. And I think the idea of confidence is not carelessness, but there is a, a, a freeing, a freedom that says Christ has made it possible for me to come. I have a high priest. He has opened the way. And so I can come to the throne of grace because he tells me, come. And so I come with confidence. And where am I coming? I'm coming to the throne of grace. It's such a beautiful picture. Because what do I need? I need grace. I need mercy. Uh, Mercy, I think, is that compassion on on pitiful beings. And perhaps there's an emphasis here, particularly the, the mercy of forgiveness. That I am sinful. And I need cleansing. And so I come that I might receive cleansing. I need grace. I need that continual strength, that sustaining work in which God enables me to continue on and to face the trials and difficulties that I'm facing. I need grace. It's a throne of grace. It's as if you're saying, boy, I, I am starving and I need food. And someone says, well, here's the house of food. Come and get what you need. I am hurting and I am sick. And someone says, well, here's the hospital of healing. Come and get healing. 
and I am weak, and I am sinful. And God says, here's the throne of grace. Come and receive grace. Receive mercy and receive it when? To help in time of need. Exactly the right time that I need it. I've often thought of this verse as I've seen people go through very dark times, very trying times. And maybe you've been in the situation which you've seen someone else facing something and you think, I could not go through that. And I think this verse tells us right now you could not. Because you don't need the grace to go through that right now. But if God ever put you in that place, you could go through it. Because God would give you exactly the amount of grace that you need. Because he understands our weaknesses. And he sympathizes with us. How can we possibly come to the Lord's table? Because we have a great and gracious high priest. So let us cling to him. And let us come to him to find the mercy and grace that we need. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed as we consider your kindness toward us. Lord, we we have no right to come to you. And yet, Jesus Christ, through his blood that he has taken into the heavens as he bore our iniquities and our sins, as he took the handwriting of ordinances that were against us and wiped it out, nailing it to his cross. That now we, who are your enemies and ourselves, who deserve your wrath, are instead welcomed here at your table. And Lord, we thank you that not only did you bring us to your table, but that you have your son continuing to intercede for us, continuing to help us, continuing to make it possible for us to come to this throne of grace. So Lord, help us to hold fast to our confession and help us to come with boldness and confidence, even as we partake of this table now, that we would humbly and yet joyfully rejoice that we are partakers of Christ's body and blood. We ask these things in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen.